Welcome to Rising. Thank you for starting off your week with us. I'm joined today by Bacha Ungar Sargan. Bacha, it's wonderful to see you. Thanks, Robbie. Great to be here with you. Well, another Norfolk Southern train derailed near Springfield, Illinois on Saturday evening. Officials say the affected cabs were not carrying hazardous materials. The cause of the accident is unknown, pending an investigation from the Federal Railroad Administration. Now, this comes only weeks after Norfolk Southern derailment disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. Angry residents confronted company executives on the matter during a town hall event on Friday after the railway skipped an earlier town hall last month. Let's watch. We are sorry. We're very sorry. We feel horrible about it. For the first time since the toxic train derailment on February 3rd, East Palestine getting a public apology from Norfolk Southern. At Thursday night's town hall, residents peppered government officials and the railroad company with their questions. If this happened in a richer neighborhood, richer town, that's say a richer neighborhood, would it have been cleaned up a lot faster? Sir, I'm, I'm going to tell you that we really never had an accident like this in my career, in my career. Norfolk Southern also telling the audience they've had no talks about helping relocate families. I don't have the means to leave, and it sickens my heart every night that I have to lay down and think that I'm laying my boys down in a poisonous atmosphere. We talked to parents like Candace DeSanzo, who wasn't satisfied with officials' answers. It comes to a point where it crosses the line of negligence and incompetence to where it's criminal. And Zach Chamberlain, who quit working after not feeling well on the job. He doesn't know what his family should do. Like a shepherd wouldn't raise a sheep in a contaminated area, and I don't want to raise my family in a contaminated area. You know, I want to take them to where their health team can thrive. But tensions also grew high between East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway and residents blaming him for not returning their calls. We're doing the best we can here. Okay. And by the way, just so everybody knows, I tried to keep my cool and now I've lost it, and I apologize. I'm a part-time mayor. I have to keep my family so a lot of tensions there, obviously, a lot of anger. Um, you know, the news that there was another derailment, uh, they're saying not one that had hazardous materials, um, actually makes sense given what Secretary Pete Buttigieg has said. You know, he said, well, there are a thousand derailments every year, so I guess it's about time for another one if that really is the case that we just allow that to happen, and that's kind of considered business as usual. Yeah, I mean, it's just so heartbreaking to see these people having to contend with their futures, you know, the symptoms they're experiencing, the fact that their homes are now worth so much less than they were a month ago, the just, just devastation in this small town community. And I just have to say, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's such a shame that this has gotten politicized, right? You hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if we did not have such a politically polarized environment, would anyone have cared at all about this community? Would anyone have given them any airtime whatsoever if they weren't getting airtime on Fox News? Yes, as part of a way of ragging on Democrats and the left for things that, you know, I think they deserve to be, right? But in a way, um, that's what I keep thinking about when I see this, which is that, you know, yes, our po political polarization can end up hurting people, but also it can end up 
giving attention to people who clearly deserve it. And to their credit, people like Brianna, people like Nina Turner have been out there front and center saying these people deserve to be heard. Um, but I'm not sure that it would have gone much further beyond that. I'm not sure that we would have gotten that, you know, quasi apology from Mayor Pete Buttigieg, you know, if, if, if there hadn't been such an uproar from the right who now see people like this as their base. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, conservative media, I think, is certainly paying attention to this for the reasons you outlined. You know, that actually shows, it shows the benefits to the fractured me uh, media ecosystem. There are benefits. We only talk about, well, we talk about the benefits of them, but the mainstream media is always talking about, you know, the downsides that now, you know, everyone, you, you can't keep people on message because you can't control what the message is the way you used to, uh, you know, before the rise of alternative news sites, before Fox News, before social media really, you know, open the doors to everyone being able to, to say and report and do what they want in terms of the media and communications. You know, the media, the mainstream media hates that environment, um, but it, it, like you said, it, it has downsides, too, that we're, we're a lot more at each other's throats, I think, and a lot more tense and fired up. And that can be that can be a barrier to progress or to policy working things out. But as you said, it does it does lend itself toward attention actually being paid to issues like this. I totally agree with you. I don't think we would have, we would have seen any much at all or any national coverage of this um, without uh, the current you know so-called unhealthy media ecosystem. But Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has gone on the offensive dealing with backlash to his response to the derailments, directly calling out Tucker Carlson and former President Trump in an interview with CNN yesterday. Buttigieg is now hitting back, telling CNN it's really rich to see some of these folks, the former president, these Fox hosts who are literally lifelong card-carrying members of the East Coast elite who wouldn't know their way around a TJ Maxx if their life depended on it to be presenting themselves as if they genuinely care about the forgotten middle of the country. You think Trump, Tucker Carlson knows the difference between TJ Maxx and Kohl's? You know, and people <laughs> uh, make that accusation against Tucker all the time, but he, he has the perfect response to it. Like, he will say, you know, when he's called out, they say, but you're an elite. You know, you went to prep school. You, they say, you go through his history. You go, yes, no, exactly. I, I've never claimed to not be part of the elite. I, I understand, because I've been around the elite, how they, how they neglect or don't care or don't understand the, you know, the, the working class perspective. Um, and, and Donald Trump, actually, to some extent, does that as well. So it's not at all the gotcha, I don't think, that, that, the, that people like Buttigieg think it is whenever they bring it up. Yeah, I mean, for starters, I shop at both Kohl's and TJ Maxx, and I couldn't tell you what the difference is between them. I mean, they're both a place where you get a great bargain. I really, I don't know what he's talking about there. Um, you know, this move to attack the, by ad hominem people who are making good criticisms of your terrible job that you're mm -hmm. doing, it's such, it's just the lowest form of discourse. And I totally agree with you. Look, I wrote a whole book about how you have to basically be part of the elites in order to be in journalism. Great. So all the journalists are part of the elites. Let's get that out of the way. 
once you're in that position, you have two choices. You could spend your time as a member of the elite, you know, supporting and defending power and defending other powerful elites, or you can spend your position and your time and your energies in that position of privilege, speaking up for people who don't have it. And it seems to me that the left is enraged that people with privilege would choose to use that privilege in order to speak up on behalf of the people who never get a saying because they didn't have the same opportunities, right? You have those opportunities. You could either choose to only benefit yourself, which is what like the vast majority of leftism is today, is just defending the top 20%, or you can choose to use that privilege and power to speak up on uh, on behalf of people who don't have that same privilege and power. And that is 100% what you see constantly on Fox News. And they can't stand it because that's not what they're doing, what they're using their privilege for. So I, I agree with you. Like, it's such a weird, lame ad hominem, like people like, you know, J.D. Vance, you know, very privileged person, Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, very privileged person, very highly educated, who have put in the work to try to understand their base and understand what people who did not have access to those same privileges need and want, and to represent those people in a way that their privilege has enabled them to do. And people use this weird ad hominem, oh, you're so privileged, you're an elite, you have this education. Nobody's denying that, you know? Yeah, and, and journalism is the most saturated with, uh, with institutional elitism and everyone, Nepo babies, everyone is a Nepo baby, everyone is <laughs> some, some former senator or whatever's um, child or grandchild in our, in our industry. I don't know about you, Bacha, but <laughs> I don't know, it's the Ungar Sargans no, were very influential. No, no, no journalist in my, in my background, but you know, I definitely, there, there was a time when I thought, I don't know how I can become a journalist, like I'm not going to sit there and do unpaid internships like that was not in the cards for me I did one for three months and was like okay I'm like tapped out you know? <laughs> um, it's it's just ridiculous like and and but I think you know there's you should give kudos to people who have made it into this industry you know and and you choose to use their position of privilege and power to speak up on behalf of people who don't have it and instead what you have is there was a front front page article in the New York Times this weekend I believe about you know black equestrians who's Ride, horse riding helmets don't fit. And it's like, can you think of a more privileged <laughs> problem to have? Like that's who the left is obsessed with helping. And it was very funny, mm -hmm. even in the Chris Rock special, I don't know if you watched it, but you know, he was joking about how privileged his daughters were, how they're horse riders and fencers. And, you know, like to talk about that without acknowledging that like, this is, you know, these are like the hallmarks of like extreme privilege in this country, you know, but that is who, that is who their heart beats for, you know, the, the black equestrian who's helmet doesn't fit and meanwhile east palestine is you know the people who you're supposed to have utmost contempt for well you're on a tear today bacha so we're going to take a brief <laughs> break and come back with your radar that's up next you don't want to miss it bacha what's on your radar this week on Real Time with Bill Maher, Vermont Senator and two-time presidential candidate Bernie Sanders joined Maher to discuss his new book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. The book has already hit the bestseller list, uh, solidifying Sanders' position among the millionaires who used to exoriate before he switched his ire to the billionaires. Still, and I mean this seriously, 
who could begrudge the Democratic Socialist a bit of cash in his dotage? I certainly do not. The man is clearly a heartfelt warrior for the downtrodden, someone who has devoted his life to raising up the plight of the have-nots, a man who came from nothing and never forgot those living as he once did. He deserves respect and admiration for it. And yet, while one can cheer on this great American dream story, there is something instructive in how it played out, specifically how Senator Sanders used his talent and fame to write best-selling books and climb the economic ladder, and from his new vantage point, declared that the real enemy are the people a few rungs higher up. Because in a way, this is the journey that the upper middle class has traversed more generally, and it unfortunately blinds many well-intentioned Americans to some of the real sources of inequality in this country. Uh, this was all very much on display in Sanders' conversation with Bill Maher. The conversation began with Senator Sanders discussing the theme of his book, which is that right now in America, there is more income inequality than there has ever been in the past. Three people own more wealth than the bottom half of American society, Senator Sanders told Maher. CEOs make 400 times what their workers do. There's a concentration of power and wealth in a smaller and smaller number of corporations, and three Wall Street firms control over $20 trillion. We also have a political system that's been corrupted by money, thanks to the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. Add all that up, says Sanders, and you get a country which is moving, quote, rapidly into an oligarchic form of society. The middle class declines and the rich get richer, says Sanders. Now, Marr pushed back on a few of Sanders' claims, starting with what would count as a fair tax rate for billionaires. After all, the top 1% already pay nearly half of all income taxes in the U.S., one could also question the narrative surrounding money and politics. Um, there is for sure something intuitively distasteful about it, no doubt. Yet Donald Trump was able to win in 2016 despite being outspent by his rivals, both Democratic and Republican, to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. You may not like Trump nor have wanted him to win, but he's got to inspire a vote of confidence in American democracy, whatever your politics are. Sanders is, of course, right that a lot of people who were middle class in the 70s no longer are. Many Americans and their children have been downwardly mobile. Working class wages stagnated in the 70s, while the costs of the hallmarks of the American dream, owning a home, a secure retirement, choices for your children, have absolutely skyrocketed. NAFTA and globalization more generally resulted in the offshoring of much of our manufacturing, an industry that used to secure middle-class lives for working-class Americans. And now those same communities struggle with deaths of despair from suicide, alcoholism, and overdoses, something Senator Sanders brought up in the interview. Yet when you talk to people in those communities, it's rare that they bring up the problem of inequality as such. Often they admire billionaires and see them as jobs creators. These people just don't have nearly the same level of class resentment for billionaires that credentialed urban elites do. And it's easy to see why. So consider a country in which the poorest person was someone who wrote a few best-selling books and became a millionaire, someone like Bernie Sanders, say, but whose neighbors are all billionaires. You would be hard-pressed to make the case that this society was in trouble, though it was still very unequal. In other words, inequality is really only a problem if the bottom rung is struggling, living a life without dignity due to systematic deprivation of a sort one shouldn't expect in a rich country. Now, I would agree that with Bernie that that is true for all too many Americans. Yet the relevant question for helping them is not how rich are the billionaires? It's do they have access to the American dream? 
it's not how much more money than them do their bosses make. It's are they paid a living wage enough to buy a home and retire in dignity? And again, Senator Sanders is right. Many truly aren't. But the reasons for that are complicated and the solutions Bernie has spent his life proposing would actually not do a lot to help them. While the problem Bernie has identified of upward mobility for working class Americans is very real, the solutions he proposes, taking money from the rich to expand the welfare state, are actually designed to sustain the dependent poor in that state or even on occasion to help the upper middle class. While it's popular on the left to rail against the billionaire set, the truth is that it is the top fifth that has seen the biggest income gains in recent decades, even without the 1%, as Richard V. Reeves has shown. Between 1979 and 2013, the top 1% saw a jump of $1.4 trillion in pre-tax income. But those between the 81st and 99th percentile saw a gain of $2.7 trillion. At least some of the disappearing middle class, in other words, disappeared upwards, joining the ranks of what Reeves calls the dream hoarders, from where this new oligarchy decries the billionaires hoarding all that wealth and demanding it be redistributed. And how much money a year puts you in the top 20%? Well, of course, it varies state by state, but on average, it's somewhere around $125,000 a year. Not coincidentally, the upper limit for qualifying for President Biden's student loan forgiveness program that Bernie heartily endorses. Bill Maher actually specifically asked Bernie about this on his show. Consider the following exchange. Uh, this is a survey student loan forgiveness recipients. 73% of applicants say they are likely to spend their extra money on non-essential, including vacations, smartphone, drugs, and alcohol. They, they admitted that to the pollster. Who is this pollster? I, NBC, <laughs> NBC News. 52% um, they are very likely or likely to buy new clothing. 46% they would use the money for vacation and eat out at restaurants. This is why people have a thing about, I, I would never call it free money. Oh, I guess I just did, but. Um. Well, I, I mean, let me respond to that in two ways, Bill. You talk about giveaways. Under Trump, the Congress voted for a trillion dollars in tax breaks for the richest people in this money, in this country, and the largest corporations. That's a giveaway. We no. just increased military spending with very little discussion, I don't know if you know this, by $80 billion. Sanders also had this to say. Military industrial complex. Including the Democrats. Pardon they, me? The Democrats vote for it too. Yes, absolutely correct. Absolutely yeah. right. All right. But that's socialism, the military. That's crony socialism. Well, that's right? crony capitalism. But, but the it, military uh, isn't capitalism. That's, that's the government. No, but it's who owns the military industrial complexes. All right, but anyhow. Right. All right. So when you talk about giveaways, you have major corporations in this country that make billions in profit don't pay a nickel in taxes. Billionaires have an effective tax rate lower than that of a truck driver or a nurse. You have a generation, you talk about this younger generation right now. I got around the country and I talked to a lot of people. You know, I don't know anything about that poll, but I can tell you, I've talked to nurses who are working their asses off, doing the right thing. They leave school $70,000. They can't afford now to get married and have children. They can't afford the housing that they desperately need. So the truth is you've got a generation that everything being equal, the younger generation will have a lower standard of living than their parents. 
we had to cut part of that for timing purposes. But notice how when asked to defend giving money to people who would use it on things like vacations and eating out, Senator Sanders pivoted to whataboutism. What about Republican tax cuts for the rich? What about the military? The argument he seems to be making is because we give tax breaks to corporations and billionaires, we should also give them to early career lawyers and accountants and professors and dentists. This isn't a working class policy. Of course, there are some people who took out thousands of dollars in loans and then dropped out of college who don't have the benefit of a degree in a marketplace that uses one as a gatekeeping mechanism, yet they still have the burden of the loans. And these people absolutely deserve some kind of assistance. Yet those who graduate, even with the burden of loans, remain much more likely to become homeowners than Americans with just a high school diploma. Since 2010, the share of American homeowners with a bachelor's degree increased by 18%, while it's gone down by 13% for those without a degree. The median salary of someone with a bachelor's degree is more than double that of someone with a high school diploma. Despite student loan debt, a college degree is a strong and growing indicator for becoming a homeowner. So it's really misleading to cast college grads as those struggling to attain the American dream when they are the ones most likely to be achieving it and even hoarding it. Now, you might say that another one of Sanders' signature proposals is designed to address just this problem, his push for free college. After all, if everyone gets a degree, surely everyone will then have access to the profits of the knowledge industry. Unfortunately, it's just not that simple. A lot of people are not suited for college. More importantly, perhaps, there just isn't a glut of jobs that actually need a college education to go around. The growing industries in the U.S. include manufacturing, service industry jobs, trucking, and caretaking jobs. Someone has to do those essential jobs, and they should not be treated like less than just because they have chosen to devote their lives to them. Not everyone can be a programmer or a filmmaker, though certainly we should stop importing foreigners to do those jobs and make a push to educate more Americans who want them. And yes, there's plenty of untapped potential in neighborhoods without access to equal opportunity. That should be our focus. Instead of focusing policy on making life easier for more and more upwardly mobile college graduates who are actually already doing very well in this country, instead of continuing to hammer home some kind of values-based connection between dignity and college, or worse, handing out the taxpayer dollars of truckers and waitresses to college grads so they can go on vacation, our efforts should be focused on making sure that jobs that don't require college secure a dignified life. In other words, Unfairness is not always injustice, and you cannot tax your way to a solid middle class. It is no defense of billionaires to say that the real class divide is not between the billionaires and everyone else. It's between the top 20% and the bottom 80%. While millennial college grads may take longer to buy a home than their parents did, they are still highly likely to follow in their parents' upper middle class footsteps. Meanwhile, life for working class Americans is increasingly precarious. What they need is not charity from billionaires. They need access to affordable single-family homes, to vocational schools, and to safe neighborhoods where their kids can thrive. No doubt, we need to do better at ensuring every American has health care and helping the dependent poor. But that will not create an upper pathway for seekers of the American dream. Now, Robbie, I told you before my radar that I thought you were going to like it a lot. How did I do? <laughs> I don't even know what to say. You took the words uh, right out of my mouth. I, I co-sign your, uh, your entire thesis there. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's true that sometimes the focus on uh, economic inequality um, is a way of getting around 
uh, questions about, you know, we're in, it's, I don't think it's so much that people resent wealthier people or people who've been successful. Maybe, maybe they resent them if, you know, if they obviously if they got their wealth illegitimately, as you know, some as some wealthy people do by by. Get, you know, taking advantage of the system or you know, rigging the game in their favor, and that's something you know, I share the left's passion in trying to root out. But the real question is, is the actual condition of people who are not wealthy good enough uh, and getting better over time? And in many ways, it does. There, you know, there's less globally, there's less starvation there's than, than uh, there has been in previous centuries. But in a couple, in, in narrower cases in America, right, education costs have gotten a lot worse. Um, healthcare costs have gotten a lot worse. So let's, you know, think about smart ways to tackle um, those problems, you know, rather than kind of sweeping condemnation of, of success, which to your point, um, working class people don't share. But uh, anyway, we'll leave it at that. Great job as always, Batya, and we'll have more rising in just a minute. Former Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb called for expanded regulations on risky research, such as that of the coronavirus, regardless of whether it leaked from a lab. Here he is on CBS's Face the Nation. We're still stuck on the debate about whether it was or wasn't a lab leak. I don't think we're going to prove that. I think we should work on the assumption that there's a probability that it was a lab leak and start putting in place the kinds of protections that we need. He also added that maybe gain-of-function research should not be outsourced to China. Perhaps it should be nixed entirely. We need to get the intelligence agencies engaged in this as a national security, as a part of their national security mission, and look at public health preparedness through a national security lens. I think we're doing that now, but we need to be very explicit about that. And that does mean also surveillance around some of the high-risk activities that can create these kinds of risks. Meanwhile, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan isn't letting anyone slide. He told Fox News' Maria Bartiromo he wants answers about where the virus came from and who was responsible for possibly covering up all the facts. Here he is on Fox News' Sunday Morning Futures. Dr. Gary's email says, I don't know how this happens in nature. It would be easy to do in a lab. That same day, February 1st, 2020, so again, right at the start, that same day, Dr. Fauci organizes a conference call. Him and Dr. Collins get on there with Dr. Gary, Dr. Anderson, all these other virologists. They get on there, and three days later, everybody changes their story. The same guy who said this would be easy to do in a lab says, oh, now you're crazy if you think it came from a lab. The same guy that says, I don't know how this, that, that this, would, uh, that this does, that looks engineered, he changes his story. And then the kicker is, three months later, those same two doctors, Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, get a several million dollar grant from Dr. Fauci to continue their research. So the, the fundamental question is, why was Dr. Fauci so consumed with making sure the narrative wasn't about the lab? I think it's because they were doing gain-of-function research there. He didn't want that out. And, and that was the narrative that everyone on the left bought into, even though the facts and common sense, maybe most importantly, pointed to the lab leak theory. So Scott Gottlieb, you know, saying that he thinks it probably is a lab leak, he le or he leans in that direction at least, but it really, really doesn't matter. I mean, it, ma it matters, but we're not going to know any time in the immediate future. But we should proceed as if that is what happened and take all necessary precautions. And I'm, I'm hearing this and thinking, yeah, <laughs> why weren't we taking all necessary <laughs> precautions in the first place? Uh, you know, why did, did government scientists think risky research, not following necessary safety protocols, being outsourced to 
China under the purview of an authoritarian government that is not transparent and does not, you know, does not participate or admit wrongdoing. Uh, this is, was a recipe for disaster in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to point out, um, I, I found that interview with Jim Jordan really interesting. Um, I think it's important to note, this is why he didn't want to be nominated to be Speaker of the House. He was very clear uh, that he was very invested in these investigations. He was very invested in getting to the bottom of COVID and holding people to account people like Dr. Fauci. And in this interview, I think he was very measured. I mean, he was not throwing flames. It, this was, there was no trolling. It was, it seemed to me very moderate, very appropriate, and exactly kind of what you need, which is somebody who's doggedly pursuing the truth in this issue, and then trying to represent what the American people want in terms of steps forward for keeping us safe. Right, right. And they want they want answers to this, uh, of course. You know, I keep talking about the mainstream media's Sudden, uh, and, and they can't deny it anymore. Now that there is, you know, enough um, enough reason to think that at least the lab leak is just as plausible as the alternative. You know, some agencies have reached one conclusion, but now increasingly, fed, agents of the federal government are concluding that, with low confidence, but possibly it was a lab leak. And now the media has had to cover it for these past two weeks, um, as if for the first time, as if as if they just heard this idea. But actually, they. They vigorously suppressed this idea for for a year, for more than a year. Um, they their thunderous accusations of conspiracy and racism against people who were just mildly asking whether it was possible. Uh, it's really some chickens coming home to roost now, I think, because they they can't take that tact anymore. At least they're not they're not trying so much. But I'm just I'm really struck by this whole um, this whole misinformation, disinformation framing that is just, you know, it's what we're what we're living under, how that is now the excuse for every uh, every news outlet uh, or mainstream publication or elite uh, cabal to silence speech or to silence everyday Americans all stems from a concern that they're going to hear information that that the elite consensus thinks is wrong, but just time and time again, it proves out that the consensus itself was wrong, or at least it's more confusing than, uh, or, or more open to interpretation than any of them thought. Uh, and yet, this, and yet, we go through this. I'm sure, I'm sure this is going to happen again. There's going to be some other story. They say, no, you can't. Anyone talking about this racist conspiracy theorist? You know, why isn't why isn't Facebook doing more to crack down on this? You know, you can. This is how it always goes. There's stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post and on MSNBC and CNN. They're railing against um, a, a social media allowing conversations like this to take place. And then a year later, it's like, oops. Well, I guess you should have been able to discuss this. Oh well. So there was a really great example of that on, I don't know if you watched Bill Maher this weekend. Um, he had on Russell Brand um, mm -hmm. and someone from MSNBC, uh, John Heilman. And um, so Bill Maher, who was a big skeptic about COVID extremism from the beginning, and Russell Brand, who of course has taken that to a whole new level in his Rumble show, um, they were sort of, you know, so so Bill Maher said, didn't this, doesn't this now prove the skeptics correct that it's all coming out? And John Hallman from MSNBC said, well, the problem with the lab leak theory was from the beginning that Donald Trump mentioned it in the context of racism. 
he he said kung flu virus and then he said china virus and then he said lab leak so he tainted the theory with racism and then all of us couldn't believe in it something along those lines and it was so funny because of course of course, the reason they turned on the lab leak theory was because Donald Trump suggested it was true. But that is an indictment of them. It's not an indictment of Donald Trump. You know, you can't smear the truth as racist mm-hmm. with a joke, right? That was on them. But he still can't see that. In his mind, they were still yeah. correct. Mehdi Hassan, uh, another host it. on MSNBC, said the exact same thing on Twitter uh, last week. And I, I responded to him. And I, I pushed back, um, and and then he said, uh, he I think he said that I was a Fau- an anti-Fauci conspiracist or something like that. Be- again, because just saying that, isn't it important to understand how we got this so wrong? You know, when when Fauci is this foremost advocate of of doing this research and said I'm anti-Fauci conspiracy theorist. There you go. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's just as you said. You know, you can and, and you can also you know you can condemn Trump for saying kung flu or China or any of those things. You can say that it's not appropriate. Fine, whatever. That's you know two things can be the same at once. That Trump had a not appropriate or not not appropriate to the moment or for the cadence of a of a world leader and also it was Ooh, correct Trump? to think Never. it was a lab leak <laughs> right right yeah yeah no but i think that it really it really drove home the point you're making robbie which is that so often they use the accusation of racism to cover up a class divide that they and the credentialed elites are benefiting from and imposing on people and demanding that other people pay for which is of course what so much of the COVID extremism was all about yeah all right well we'll have more rising right after this stay with us I'm Miriam Williamson, and when I was growing up, America had a vibrant middle class. The average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a home, could afford a car, could afford a yearly vacation, could afford for one member of the couple to stay home if they wished, and could afford to send their kids to college. But over the last 50 years, there's been a massive transfer of wealth to the tune of $50 trillion from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1%, decimating America's middle class. We all owe President Biden a debt of gratitude for defeating President Trump in 2020. But with the things that they're going to be throwing at us in 2024, we need to submit to the American people an agenda of fundamental economic reform, universal health care, tuition-free colleges at state colleges and universities, higher education including tech schools, paternity and maternity leave, free child care, and a guaranteed living wage. These are things that are considered moderate positions in every other advanced democracy. But in the United States, people have been trained to expect too little. The American people have been played. Now that was 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson officially announcing her challenge to President Joe Biden. And she is here with us to discuss. Welcome, Marianne. Oh, thank you. Nice to see you, Robbie. So nice to have you with us. Let's get started. You know, why did you decide, you acknowledge in that video that you're grateful to President Biden for defeating former President Trump. What made you decide uh, to run against him in this coming election cycle? 
President Biden apparently plans to tell the American people that the economy is doing well. And it's doing well for 20% of Americans. But that 20% who live on this enchanted economic island are surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. And the proposals of the president help people survive that unjust system. We need to fundamentally alter it. We need genuine economic reform in this country. And that's not coming from the Biden administration. And, it, you know, it's, it, it's the incremental changes, the slower changes, and we need to make a real economic U-turn in this country. Um, it's so great to have you with us. I'm so glad that you announced. I think that your message and the spirituality that you bring to this platform and this race is incredibly important. Um, I, I guess my first question would be, how is this different than, a, let's say, Bernie Sanders' uh, platform? Where, where do you see yourself distinguishing from you know, his run, you know, 2016, 2020? In terms of the economics of my platform, I think they are very much aligned with Bernie Sanders and millions of other people in this country who recognize that the economic system in this country is unfair. Over the last 48 years, we've had a $50 trillion transfer of wealth, as that video referred to, from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. We've had a diminishment of public spending, a diminishment of resources given to the commons and the general good in this country, so that a very few Americans could always have an easier time getting richer. It's simply wrong. It's unsustainable. And it's also undemocratic. You know, the late Supreme Court Justice Louis Brand I said, you can have large amounts of money concentrated in the hands of a few, or you can have democracy. You cannot have both. We have created a system of economic royalism, as uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt described it. So in terms of the economic perspective, I'm very similar to Bernie Sanders. I also think that I bring, just as he brings things that I don't, I think I bring things that he doesn't. Concentration on children, for instance. And also, as you were saying, Bhatia, there is a there is a more whole person, even spiritual perspective that's behind all this for me. That some people, I believe, relate to. Hmm. Well, you said recently about the DNC in an ABC News interview this week, quote, the DNC should not be rigging the system. They don't even pretend anymore. ABC News, Jonathan asks, so that's what's going on. They're rigging the system for Biden. And you responded, they even admit it. So can you speak more about how, you know, the elite interests in the Democratic Party have, uh, you know, have, have rigged the entire game already for Biden and did so in the past, maybe for Hillary Clinton as well? Well, look, this isn't 100 years ago. A bunch of men sit around a table smoking cigars, deciding who the nominee should be. This is a problem when political parties have this, this power, you know, and this is what our founders warned us about. Uh, parties that have more concern, uh, factions that have concern with their party than with their country. The Democratic voters should decide who the Democratic nominee should be. You know, that's really the moral basis of democracy, that there's a kind of group conscience, that if enough people weigh in, somehow truth rises to the top. More often than not, it does. And that was exactly how the founders saw it. So for something as important as who the Democrats nominate, in 2024, this should not be decided by a small group of people. This should be decided by Democratic voters who should have as wide an array of options before them as possible. Hmm. I love this idea of the wisdom of the body politic rising up and bringing truth. And it, it sort of brings me to my next question, which is, you know, in many ways, 
former President Trump really represented a kind of return of the repressed, right? Like this this rising up of of working class rage at this elitist machine that had silenced them for so long. That's how I see it. And I'm wondering, you know, many working class Americans see in Trump, saw in Trump a real tribune, um, you know, a finger in the eye of that 20 percent that hates them so much, as you point out. Is there anything you think it's important to learn from President Trump on that front in terms of representing those people? It's very important that we recognize the truth of what you just said. In 2016, both Trump and Bernie Sanders said to the American people, I see you, I understand your rage, and your rage is legitimate. And the very fact that Bernie Sanders had such a difficult time, I believe if the DNC had kept their fingers off the scale, either Bernie or Hillary would have won the the primary, but I believe Trump would not have been president. The difference between Bernie and Trump is that Bernie meant it. Bernie said, I see your rage and I'm going to address the conditions that cause it. Trump is master of the art of the deal. He wrote the book. He has this very as certain character, certain kinds of personalities have. He knows what people want to hear. The difference is he didn't mean it. He did not, he he knew that people were angry. Jerry Kushner said in an interesting interview that he had said to his father, there are a lot of father-in-law, there are a lot of angry people out there and we could harness all that and make you president. That's all Trump was doing. He knew that there was a political possibility there for him, a potential there for him. He has contempt for the very people he was speaking to. He's made that clear. They could never get into uh, Mar-a-Lago. But what he said in terms of, I understand and validate your rage, as did Bernie Sanders, was not only true in 2016, it's true today. And if we nominate a presidential candidate who's saying everything's good, we're going to make the same mistake we made in 2016 when Hillary said, let's just continue the success of Barack Obama. And millions of people said, what success? I'm drowning here. And that's exactly what they will say in 2024 unless we offer them a genuine alternative. You know, Marianne, I've noticed that you are willing to have conversations with a variety of people to appear on different uh, media environments. We are appreciative that you come on our show, which is kind of independent or has ideological views on um, all sorts of sides. Um, So you actually, you know, you interact with uh, conservative media or alternative and contrarian media a lot. Um, Do you think, uh, do you think they actually take you more seriously or they're more willing to think outside the box of just like, well, no, we have to get on board with President Biden's agenda. Well, I mean, if they're right wing media, obviously they're not thinking we have to get on board with Biden. I do think there's an openness, but let's not kid ourselves. I think that tune would change if I was actually the nominee. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, I want to know what would what are you planning to do differently this time than in 2020? What is it or are you going to run the same exact kind of campaign? What 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 are you looking towards? Well, certainly in terms of the things I talk about, they're very much the same because the conditions I was speaking to are, if anything, in many ways, even worse now. That's not specifically due to this administration. That's just the way the system operates, perpetuating this injustice uh, that plagues uh, our society. Also, we have, we found, unfortunately, that defeating Trump in um, 2020 did not get rid of the hatred and division. Uh, If anything, it was more like a cancer that had already metastasized. So I'm certainly speaking to some deeper levels of of internal 
plaguing and woundedness in the fabric of American society than I was even speaking to then because we associated it with one person rather than the large scale societal problem that it is. Hopefully I will also be able to run a campaign this time. You know, you that uh, is um, uh, more able to take on the job, the task at hand. Listen, you know, you run for, you know, it's like they talk about your first marriage. It's your first uh, presidential campaign. <laughs> you know, you're ready the second time to do it much better. Uh, Marianne, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's always wonderful to be here. We'll have more rising right after this. The House Office of Congressional Ethics has found substantial reason to believe that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez likely violated ethics laws given her 2021 Met Gala appearance. Now, according to House documents released on Thursday, AOC may have accepted impermissible gifts associated with her attendance at the Met Gala in 2021. The report says that Representative Ocasio-Cortez received a series of goods and services which she did not pay for until the Office of Congressional Ethics opened their review of the matter. According to AOC spokesperson Lauren Hitt, Ocasio-Cortez acknowledged these tardy payments, but she didn't think they constituted a House violation. Hitt said in a statement, the Congresswoman finds these delays unacceptable and she has taken several steps to ensure nothing of this nature will happen again, Forbes reports. The investigation opened in February 2022 and voted in June to refer the inquiry to the bipartisan House Committee on Ethics, which is continuing to investigate the situation. So it was, you know, the clothes, the shoes, et cetera, which she eventually did pay back, but she, she hadn't paid them up front. So they were saying that. And then also the ticket to the event itself cost $35,000. Now she was, this is interesting how this works. So she was, so she would be allowed to, if the organizing committee of the event invites you, that does not violate, according to the House ethics rule, she's allowed to go. But she was invited not technically by the Met, but by Vogue. Um, she was a guest of Vogue, the magazine. But they decided that, they being the investigators, because Vogue and its longtime editorial director, I'm reading from the New York Times, Anna Wintour, are deeply involved in organizing the event, they, they said it was close enough. So what do you make of all this botch? Look, on one hand, I don't know if this is the most serious violation of ethics ever propagated. The, the, the rules, frankly, sound kind of confusing. Um, and I, I could understand a, a newer member of Congress, you know, kind of, oh, I have to pay. OK, I'll pay. She did pay it. Um, on the other hand, I didn't like the optics of the event in and of itself. You know, this was still at a time where there were widespread COVID restrictions, um, including on the staff. You know, the behind-the-scenes people at the mat are all masked, and she's there, you know, glamorous. This person is crusading against the wealthy and the elite, supposedly, but she's, you know, absolutely one of them. And I think at least her cultural politics reflect that. But, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, okay, the, the, the magazine editor who sits on the board of this thing invited her to come, oh, well. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I'm also sort of mind divided about this on the one hand, um, as an ethics violation f for a member of Congress, the accepting a $35,000 gift from Anna Wintour, the Met Gala, this huge institution in, in you know, a state that she represents, that seems to me much worse um, than the potential ethical violation of renting a dress from right. a private owner. But uh, on a literal level, the ethical violation of not paying small business owners for their services, including 
hair and makeup people, my God, how much like do they make already? I mean, actually, we know how much these ones made. Actually, quite a lot. <laughs> but you know, for to be mm-hmm. to be a person in the service industry and to lay out a service and not get paid for it, is, there was something to me that was so horrifying about about that. And you know, the kind of the 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 just getting a window into somebody trying to. Um, to not pay a hairdresser like there's something about that that really horrified and shocked me and she, you know she says it was a mistake but even to make a mistake at that level you mm-hmm. know like if you are a crusader on behalf of you know the downtrodden your number one thing that you should be doing is making sure that people who give you services get paid on time like that's really important. I mean, it's 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 really important in my religion, but it's also just a, <laughs> like a basic, basic thing. Like somebody put their hands on you and gave you a, an amazing service. You know, she clearly felt that she looked so beautiful that night. And then she sort of tried to weasel out of paying for it or didn't make sure that it was maybe she thought that it was included in some sort of larger, you know, package or some sort. But, you know, you should be really careful about like knowing, like making sure people get paid. So I think that bothered me a lot more. Although the idea that this is some sort of like congressional ethics thing, I don't know how, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. worried I am about her having accepted a $300 gift from a hairdresser. Although it wasn't a gift, right? That was a service. And she was supposed to pay for it. That's a great point, Bacha, especially because, you know, these are the people, uh, members of Congress like AOC, you know, who, who aspire to write the rules for how the economy should work. Right, who have all these ideas about it being unequal and unfair, and want to you know restructure it, and they don't even in their personal lives they forget to pay the bill. That doesn't inspire a lot of confidence, right? That these are the kinds of people who should craft the rules for how all economic transactions uh, will work. I mean, the dress she was wearing there, right, literally said, "Tax the rich or eat the rich or do something unsavory with the rich." I don't know. Uh, you know, right. she's very it, it she's said very tax the rich. And it's like, how about starting with paying your hairdresser, right? Like, how about we just start with making sure that the the working class people, the service industry people who wait on us get their wages, right? There was something so ironic about that. And at the time, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Did you want to finish that thought before I got back on my high horse? But um, (laughs) um, at the time, I remember thinking, you know, the funniest thing about this is she's wearing this dress that says tax the rich as though tax the rich is a message that's going to offend all of these rich elites at the Met Gala when the truth is the exact opposite. That message was her ticket of entree because these people love paying high taxes because they are obscenely wealthy. They know there's something wrong with that and they have absolutely no problem. You know, they're someone like Anna Wintour, people who are very, very wealthy, who are in this kind of, you know, creative celebutant world, they love paying paying high taxes because it allows them to feel like they are still, you know, virtuous when they're living, you know, in the clouds, like just astronomically above everybody who waits on them. Right. So that farce of like, oh, I can, I can, I it's can. It's like the medieval um, indulgence in, system for, uh, exactly, for, for exactly. provided by the Catholic church 100%. for wealthy people. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I in general, I try to abstain from like overly criticizing Congresswoman AOC because I feel that she gets a lot of undue attention. But in this case, I did think it was really important to to point out that this is a person who's demanding money from Mm -hmm. millionaires and billionaires to pay the people that she wouldn't even pay when they were working on her. And it's a very personal labor as well, very personal service that really 
it just there was something about that that really I thought was yeah. worth highlighting and important. It's just there, are, but there are members of Congress, you know, who found out about a pandemic coming and called their stockbroker, um, you know, who rail against big tech, but actually Nancy Pelosi's husband owns stock in Facebook. There are a lot of extremely yeah. serious, uh, to, to my mind, ethical lapses going on in government and in Congress with who gets to make the rules and which industries they're beholden to or that they have vast power over. You know, we, we've seen incredibly gross example after incredibly gross example um, how House uh, Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, sabotaged or wanted to sabotage the idea of preventing the stock trading at all. So there's, so I, I you know, I don't want to uh, um, equate this with that, but uh, but I, I think it, it, it was worth talking about and for exactly the reasons you brought up. You know, there are working class people who <laughs> who deserve to get paid, and if you aspire, you know, to tell everybody else how the economy should run, probably that should be a priority for you as well. But now she says, you know, in fairness, sir, she says it really just seems like there was a ball that was dropped. It's a deeply regrettable, regrettable situation. I feel terrible for especially the small businesses that were impacted, and um, she has paid them now. But. Uh, that's that. So we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Conservative Political Action Conference speaker and Daily Wire host Michael Knowles called for the eradication of transgenderism at the conference on Saturday. There can be no middle way in dealing with transgenderism. It is all or nothing. If transgenderism is true, if men really can become women, then it's true for everybody of all ages. If transgenderism is false, as it is, if men really can't become women, as they cannot, then it's false for everybody too. And if it's false, then we should not indulge it, especially since that indulgence requires taking away the rights and customs of so many people. If it is false, then for the good of society, and especially for the good of the poor people who have fallen prey to this confusion, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. The whole preposterous ideology at every level. Now, Rolling Stone's headline about the event claimed that Knowles had called for, quote, transgender people to be eradicated. And Knowles called that headline libelous and demanded a retraction, which Rolling Stone complied with. And their new headline then read, CPAC speaker calls for eradication of transgenderism and somehow claims he's not calling for elimination of transgender people. So per Knowles, eradicating, quote, transgenderism is not a call for eradicating, quote, transgender people. Hmm. I think it's a really great example of the media totally screwing up what should have been like slam dunk criticism of Michael Knowles. I don't agree with what he's saying there at all. Um, I don't particularly like the very eliminationist rhetoric he's he's suggesting there. I think it is totally fine to criticize him for it. I think. The vast majority of Americans, even including some who have issues with uh, what things the, some members of the transgender activist community want, probably don't agree with what Michael Knowles is saying there. 
However, because <laughs> Rolling Stone, which I think unfortunately has become an increasingly careless publication, uh, uh, wrote that headline, they opened themselves up to correct criticism that they were misquoting him. Now, does it raise to the? Does it rise to the issue of libel? Is it libelous? I, I doubt that. I would have to see what a court would say. I don't think it's libelous. It is definitely wrong, and they were right to correct it. And then correcting it and still making fun of him in the headline is like I think they. I think they really. I think it was an own goal. Is what I'll say. Yeah, it's interesting. So the question comes down to, does the call for eradicating transgenderism in effect, is that the same mm -hmm. as calling for eradicating transgender people? And is there enough of a distinction there for him, for Knowles, to take umbrage at being misquoted that way? I mean, obviously it was a misquote if it was put in quotes, right? Because he didn't say those words. But, um, you know, we have a, actually we have a quote here from Aaron Reed, a transgender rights activist and writer who told Rolling Stone that the distinction is she called it absurd. There is no difference between a ban on, quote, transgenderism and an attack on transgender people, she said. She added, quote, they are one and the same and there's no separation between them. Um, you know, I, I so it's... Right. That's the question. Is this an example of the kind of, you know, everything is harm, everything is an attack on our being, any criticism is to steal from our humanity that we, you know, often criticize on the left? Or did this veer a little bit too close to comfort? I mean, a world without transgenderism would also be a world without transgender people in it, right? right. You know, this sort of the logical conclusion from it. I mean, if you don't have transgenderism, where are all the trans people, right? What happens to them? Well, and and like eradicate that? is a particularly harsh, almost kind of violent word or has, has, uh, has very unpleasant well, implications, I, well, I, would I would say. say. It's very harsh and unpleasant when it's applied to people when it's applied to an ideology, it's mm -hmm. a, I, th I think it's a lot less harsh, right? It's a lot more understandable. You know, if we, I'm sure you and I would be very comfortable saying Nazism should be eradicated, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's no real, you, one doesn't rebel at, at hearing words like that. Well, but in um, that case, I mean, right, right, Nazism should be eradicated. And if that implies Nazis will also be <laughs> in some way eradicated, that, that doesn't, I, I think it does imply some kind of like strong, very illiberal action being taken against Nazis as well, which probably, again, we, 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 we had a world war against them, so we, we did, in fact, eradicate them by violent means. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, I think I mean, it's kind just, of like I, if you yeah. were to say, you know, let's, let's imagine a, a um, you know, some progressive activist, activist said we're going to eliminate, we need to eliminate the Second Amendment, eradicate the Second Amendment. And then a conservative said, oh, they're trying to eradicate gun owners. They're going to eradicate Second Amendment supporters. I think... Um, I think liberal progressives would understand how that was kind of unfair to to say that that's what they were saying. They were saying they want that law changed. They want the policy to be different, not like people who want to celebrate the Second Amendment being rounded up or something like that. Like it is a little bit different. Um, but maybe it's you know maybe you're, we're drawing very unclear distinctions here. Anyway, I, I think what he was saying was wrong. I, do, I don't agree with it. I, I don't. He, he was say, what he was trying to say. What Michael Knowles was saying is that you can't just prohibit you know, gender-affirming care or, or surgeries or whatever for, for young people, because if, trans, if transgenderism is accepted at any age, then it just has to be accepted across the board. So it has to also be prohibited for all Americans. Um, I, I don't view, I don't agree with that at all. I think consenting adults can really, should be able to do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting other people. Um, the, you know, the 
public policy question is over what is the appropriate age to to say that this person is old enough to consent. You know, we I, we have to set these from a societal standpoint, right? We've set what is the age at which you can drive a car? What is the age at which you can drink? What is the age at which you can get married? What is the age at which you can uh, you can take out student loan debt? You know, there there and some of these things I think are kind of discordant and don't make sense compared to where the other things are, like why you can't drink until you're 21, but you can, you know, get married at 18, or it, some of it doesn't actually make a lot of sense to me. But it is a, appropriate. I think most people accept it's appropriate for society or government or policymakers to to draw these kinds of lines. And Knowles was actually saying those lines should not be drawn, or the line should be that no one, you know, can consent to do this. Which again, I find that very interesting. Maybe that's what the most conservative people think, but. Um, Right. I think, you know, an even better example than your very good Second Amendment example would be, let's say, you know, somebody on the left said, and they say this all the time, we need to eradicate the MAGA movement, right? Mm -hmm. Or MAGA, right? I mean, to a lot of people who are very proudly part of the MAGA movement, that sounds very vile and violent. And I'm sure, you know, Knowles himself, you know, might be one of the people right. who, if they heard that language, would say, you see, they hate you, they're waging war against you, they're trying to, right, and so forth. So I, I think that, you know, it's important to be careful in our language, and I agree with you about the implications of, of what he was saying. I, too, don't agree with it, but I, I and I, it's not where the sort of, the median American voter is not there. They're in a much, they're much more mm -hmm. where you are, Robbie, which is, you know, we need to, you know, 64% of Americans believe we need to protect transgender Americans from discrimination in housing and in the job market, right? That's that's hardly a call for eradication. It's it's actually the opposite, right? But they are not on board with, you know, the interventions with in childhood. My question, I guess, would be like, you know, without the extremists on the right saying that this is an ideology that's taken hold and that's being pushed by the left and that we need to put a stop to it, who else is going to pick up the mantle in a vigorous way to protect children from it, right? So I think that, you know, that is, it's an open mm. question. I'm not saying, I'm not weighing down one way or the other. I really don't know. Um, you know, but certainly the mainstream liberal community who you would expect to be sort of a bulwark against the extremisms of the left has 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 catapulted, has capitulated, I'm sorry, to the far left on this issue. So it sort of begs the question like, okay, well, so who's pulling in the other direction and how hard do you have to pull and how far do you have to go? I have been, for one, pretty heartened to see that a lot, like it's very rare to see criticism of the transgender agenda bleed into homophobia. In my mm -hmm. experience, as somebody who spends a lot of time in right-wing spaces, you know, following the conversation, and I've been very heartened by that. Um, but but again, so it, it begs the question, you know, I, it, I, it makes me uncomfortable to hear someone talk about eradicating something that includes, mm -hmm. you know, Americans, even, you know, less than 1% of Americans. And I can say that while also feeling very strongly about the issue when it comes to children. Well, like you and I interviewed uh, Blair White a few weeks ago, a conservative uh, trans woman um, who spoke about her perspective on why she doesn't personally think some of these things should be implemented on, on uh, underage uh, people. Um, I, I think, you know, someone who actually has credibility, someone who has experience with these things and is, is qualified to speak on them can be persuasive or hearing their perspective is important, unlike what 
a kind of Michael Knowles type person. Is, I mean, I, I disagree with him, so that's fine. If you, if you agree with him, that's fine. Some people will agree with him. Some people will disagree. He can go out and speak and do whatever he wants. You know, I, he's, he's a he's a he's a host of a TV show just just like me. So I'm not. I, you know, I, I never want to say, oh, how? Why are you doing it this way? You should be doing it some other way. No, we 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 have opinions. We share them. That's like what we do in life. Everyone should do what you know, makes them happy. Uh, I don't, I, I tend to doubt that that kind of, that I, I think that rhetoric, is, rhetoric he's using is probably alienating. I feel similarly about Matt Walsh. I'm not saying they should stop doing it or like that's, that's up to them, right? I'm not saying they would be better put their talents somewhere else, but I would tend to guess, I think that kind of, and, and I presume both of those individuals, for instance, would say, would make these same arguments about, um, about gay marriage, I, I don't. I, I think Matt Walsh very much does. I guess I don't know exactly what uh, Michael Knowles' views on the subject are. Um, I, I think this is contrary to what the vast majority of Americans think about these issues. These are difficult. Uh, the, the you know transgender um, surgeries and gender affirming care. These are difficult public policy questions that I think. Uh, demand a degree of nuance when you discuss and when you go in it with uh, people who disagree with me their 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 disagree their views not not fair enough not saying they should be eliminated but their views are you know must be eradicated from the face of the earth um, I, I think you end up sounding maybe it's good for you know getting viewers on for your show or whatever but I, I I don't think it's necessarily helping the dialogue would be my perspective well I would say I would say even more than good for viewers like I'm very happy that prison abolitionists exist. I'm very mm. happy that anti-Zionists exist. I'm very, very relieved to find in the ecosystem people who are way to the left of me because <clears throat> how do you check yourself? How do you make sure that um, there's like a healthy exchange of ideas? How do you know for a fact that you're engaging with all of the data from all sides, unless there are people like way out there making those cases. The problem is, is that on certain topics, the way out there ideas have become, are treated like the mainstream by a tiny elite in the media. And so for a tiny elite on the right to try to sort of provide a countervailing force to that without descending into bigotry, I think is important. The question is, where is that line? And I think we should try to be as generous as possible and where we put it for our own sakes to make sure that we are being honest and we are challenging ourselves. Mm, indeed. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Please stay tuned. Tennis superstar Novak Djokovic dropped out of the Indian Wells Masters and the Miami Open after the Biden administration denied his request for a vaccine waiver. Djokovic remains unvaccinated against COVID-19. Florida Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio denounced the administration's move and sent a letter to the president urging him to intervene, writing, quote, in September 2022, you plainly declared to a national audience on 60 Minutes that the COVID-19 pandemic is over. And earlier this year, Dr. Anthony Fauci published a professional article acknowledging the limited efficacy of vaccines in protecting against respiratory pathogens like the novel coronavirus. The U.S. currently has a ban in place against unvaccinated travelers coming into the country until May 11th. Robbie, I mean, how is it that the pandemic is over when it comes to Title 42 and millions of people crossing the border, but it's still a pandemic when this amazing, you know, uh, tennis player, you know, who's who's protecting his body for actual, actual career-related mm -hmm. reasons wants to come and play tennis? 
this is just, it shows you the, the lack of flexibility that government bureaucrats have. Mm. So this policy never made any sense because while the vaccines uh, do a, a lot of good in preventing severe disease and death among at-risk populations, they do not, unfortunately, significantly prevent cases of the... You, you can be vaccinated, you can get COVID, you can spread COVID. That is an experience millions of people have had. Um, so the fact that he is not vaccinated does not put anyone at risk, put anyone else's health at risk. You know, if you're concerned about your health, you can talk to your doctor about vaccination boosters, other things, et cetera. That's an individual decision. It's not, you're not threatened by other people in, in, if they're not vaccinated. That is that the stigmatizing of the unvaccinated that the professional, you know, health punditry uh, uh, did for, for months was just, was just awful. But anyway, so this policy makes no sense. Everyone acknowledges it makes no sense, and they're still enforcing it, and they're going to keep enforcing it for another few weeks, and then they're, then they're, they're going to stop. They're, they could just stop enforcing it today. Why do they have a plan to get rid of it in the future? Just get rid of it now. Um, our peer countries do not do this. Many European countries, Canada, I don't believe, you can travel to these places if you're unvaccinated. You know, a lot of these countries, I hear, we always hear from, from many liberals and progressives, you know, the U.S. Is, has this individual characteristic that's unhealthy and we should be more like, more like Northern Europe, more like Canada, et cetera. There's so many ways, though, in which those countries are, are more free or pursued much less militant COVID policies. And it's, it's just astonishing. We are an outlier in terms of much mass enforcement related to masking and vaccines. But, uh, but anyway, the policy is indefensible. It never made any sense. It should be gotten rid of. And uh, it, it's going to stop this very talented person uh, from, from competing uh, here in the U.S. Do you think President Biden will intervene? No, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I, he should. Again, they should just end the policy. I, I get that it, it, you can come back and say, well, why does it, it, should there be special exceptions for this, you know, important person that other, other people around the world wouldn't enjoy? I'd say, fair enough. Just get, grant the exception to everyone who wants to come here. We're not stopping, you're not stopping COVID from entering the country. It's here. Uh, let's say, I never, I, never, I never liked the Title 42 justification. You know, if we want to have different immigration policies, we should just have them. The idea that you're, you know, stopping COVID from crossing the borders is insane. It was always insane. Um, so th this, this is similarly, if you want to say no special exemption for a specific person, fine. We should just get rid of the policy. We're going to do that anyway. Get rid of it right now. Return to sanity the way we have on so many other fronts, the way Biden has acknowledged we, we should in other contexts. I, I wish he had done it even more sooner, but he has done it. Uh, so this is, it, it just, it, it goes to show you, I, I don't know, <laughs> federal bureaucracies just being totally, totally inflexible beyond any, beyond any reason on so many subjects, but especially COVID. So um, I, I hope President Biden does intervene, but uh, I, I very much doubt that he will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we will have more rising for you right after this. In a conversation with fellow comedian and podcaster Russell Brand on his podcast, Joe Rogan called out billionaire Bill Gates for his involvement in public health matters. Let's watch. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation profited millions of dollars on the vaccines. Millions, yeah. millions and millions of dollars. It's all easy to find. And then once he dumped the stock, then he completely changed his narrative and he started talking about how ineffective the vaccines were and about how the virus wasn't as bad as we thought it was and about it was mostly targeting old and obese people. Like, this is f 
wild because this is the same guy that through the entire pandemic was talking about how great these vaccines are and these vaccines are so effective and they stop the virus and they stop transmission, they stop infection. And all of that was a lie. And he profited off those lies. Yes. And no, everyone wants to pretend that he's just like this amazing philanthropist. Like, no, he made a lot of money. This, yeah. is, this is motivated by money. And his entire career, he's been motivated by money. I mean, it's, it's a fair point. It's something we've explored on this show. Uh, the timeline does, in fact, fit. Uh, he, sold, uh, he sold those uh, stocks in, in uh, Pfizer, and he was an advocate of the vaccine technology. And look, I'm, I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. Again, I don't, we talked about this in an earlier segment. I don't stigmatize people for wanting to make money. But you can make money, but then if you also have like total control over the public discourse of what people are allowed to think and discuss, and you command public policy people that can mandate this, can require it, people can't come into the country right now unless they can, like still, still, the U.S., uh, un unless they get that vaccine. So I, I think that's the frustration, is that someone in a, in a position to benefit, and did benefit, as Rogan notes, very much financially from the vaccines, you know, then, and, and now is pivoting. It's absolutely, it's wild to hear what Bill Gates has to say about vaccine technology today versus at the start of the pandemic. He, he talked about, we're going to look to do a, uh, did you hear about, the, what's the thing? It's like, a, it's like an inhaler type thing, right, that'll stop you from getting COVID. He started talking about this the other day. What do you want to bet? He's going to invest in something like that. It'll be the next big thing, make a lot of money, and then you will change courses again. Right. So I wanted to ask you that. I'm just not following it as closely. So he did have a shift in his rhetoric around the vaccines after he dumped the stock? Yes. It's incredible what he said more recently about, uh, we, we played it, so Brie and I talked about this a couple weeks back, this interview of him saying about how the vaccines are not, like it's night and day, what he's saying now. Uh, and, and, and look, I think what he's saying now is correct. Probably should have been, you know, tampered down expectations a little bit the first time around. But he talks about how this is not, you know, this is not, uh, it's, it's not doing a lot for cases at all, um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, it's not maybe ideal for people to need to be injected over and over again. A lot, you know, a lot of people don't want to be injected over and over again. And it just sounds totally different, and it fits the timeline for selling, for, for dumping stocks, making tons of money from, um, off, of, uh, off of Pfizer. Yeah, so he said, he said that it's missing, it's not, so, so then, and then he was talking about this spray that will stop you from getting COVID, which has not been invented yet. Uh, and, uh, and, and, so, and so, look, I think, people, I think people deserve, I think viewers, I think the public deserves to know. It's, it's not, I don't want to stop him from speaking, obviously. I don't want to even stop him from making money. But when public policy is at stake, when we're all going to be required to do this thing, I mean, that's the, that's the point where I, I want there not to be the mandatory intervention, but because he commands, uh, he has so much influence on policymakers, uh, you know, and there, there was just this consensus among elites, among people who were going to force. I mean, they're going to add the vaccine. They wanted to add the vaccine to the um, to the re registry so that then it, it might be because of that required in certain schools. Um, still, university campuses still my alma mater, University of Michigan, is going to require the uh, the um, the bivalent booster, uh, e even though. I don't think there is a tremendous health necessity for requiring that. Um, it's not going to do enough for cases to prevent like an outbreak of 
coronavirus on the campus, um, and th this is a you know an age population that isn't particularly at risk of negative COVID outcomes. The bivalent, there are serious questions about whether it even does anything in addition to the booster, and on and on and on. All, you know, these are all things that I still feel skittish sharing these opinions because it was so uh, difficult to talk about them on social media because there was so much censorship around it and you getting in trouble for saying it, even though it's all come true, a lot of it. A lot of the skepticism has become justified. Right. I think the point you're making is so important, which is that if Bill Gates was just a private entrepreneur, wanted to invest his money here, invest his money there and say what he wanted, you know, about his investments, like no one would really have a problem with that. Right. Like in the, in the context of, you know, the marketplace or what have you. The problem is that there is 100 percent agreement between the billionaire class of people like Bill Gates and then the media class who are supposed to tell us the truth and, you know, or do their best to do so, which they don't. And then the social media tech industry. Right. And together there was collusion between these three and then the government to force you to become a slave to the thing that ended up profiting Bill Gates. Right. So on its own, he can invest his money wherever he wants, right? He could say whatever he wants and then he could, you know, do whatever he wants, right? But it's it's the the thing that made this such an outrage and such an injustice was that the government was sort of putting its finger on the scales and that there was this collusion between elites in all these different arenas to criminalize disagreeing in a way that put billions of dollars in his pocket. And I think that that is the thing that the American people really have a problem with more so than just, you know, him, you know, getting to have his say, you know, it's that he takes his money and it has, it, you know, it not even just, and this is a point I make a lot, you know, his influence is not because he took his money and created the Gates Foundation and then from there had all his minions doing his bidding. Of course, you get some amount of influence there. That's for sure true. But that doesn't create a totally compliant government, a totally compliant media, and a totally compliant social media system. The thing that creates total compliance from those entities is a class solidarity of all of these people who have been educated in the same places and have complete class solidarity and economic interests in common. That's my kind of Marxism coming out here. <laughs> um, but I, I really think that it, you need something that deep because there's no inherent reason why the left should have been on the side of, you know, this kind of Foucauldian bio interference, right? Creating this like mass of people who are completely compliant and to the to the state in this way, right? Like 30 years ago, 50 years ago, it would have been the right pushing for that and the left saying this is, you know, the biological authoritarianism, right? There's no natural reason why that should have happened. And in fact, in Scandinavia, as you point out all the time, in our peer countries, Leftists were completely on the side of what was the Republican position here. Why should a child take this? No, you need to give me a doctor's note to justify mm -hmm. putting that in a child's body, right? That was the leftist point of view in many other countries. It's class solidarity in this country, and that class solidarity, it, it, it extends to billionaires because they also have that same education, that same worldview that is sort of safetyist and protectionist and sort of you know paternalistic in nature and believes in controlling people. And I think that's really the bigger story here. Mm, absolutely. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, I'll be back at this desk with Brianna Joy Gray. Bacha, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you. I'll be watching. 
Well, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere that you consume podcasts. Take care. See you on Tuesday.